This podcast is brought to you by AJ Bell and Shares Magazine. Shares Magazine is published by AJ Bell Media, part of AJ Bell. Hi, I'm Danny Hewson. Welcome to the latest edition of the Money and Markets podcast. This week, we'll be looking at what's next for the future of the UK's beleaguered travel industry after several greenless countries introduced restrictions on British tourists. Tom Selby is with me to talk about pension nudging. That's right. Thanks, Danny. Retirement planning can be a complicated beast, which is why the government's trying to push more people to get guidance. But this nudging could affect you if you are looking to take your money out or move your pot to a new provider. We'll also be assessing what OPEC will do when they meet later this week as the oil price hangs around post-pandemic highs. Dan Coatsworth has been talking to Rhys Davies from Invesco about whether bonds are really out of favour with investors. As the FCA bans crypto firm Binance from carrying out regulated activities in the UK, it seemed timely to catch up with Ruffer Investment Director Duncan McInnes to get his take on investing in Bitcoin. Plus, is taking out life insurance really a pact with death? I'll be taking a look at some comments made over the weekend that's got some people rather hot under the collar. And Jenny Owen is back to give us her take on the battle of the billionaires as Bezos and Branson race each other into space. That's quite some holiday, but given where we are with COVID travel restrictions, it might not be as complicated as getting away for a week or two over the summer if you're a British tourist. Despite the government's addition of places like Malta, Madeira and the Balearic Islands to the UK's green list, Concerns over the spread of the Delta variant have seen the likes of Spain and Portugal change their travel requirements, and that's caused real pain to travel stocks, hasn't it, Danny? Yeah, I mean, they have taken a massive hit over the last couple of days. That, as you say, is despite a number of popular destinations being added mm. to that UK's green list, which comes into effect this week. Now, that is because that although the British government says, look, that's fine, British holidaymakers can travel to places like Malta, Madeira and the Balearics, the re- relevant governments have then imposed their own restrictions on Brits. And mm-hmm. it's been a really confusing picture for travellers. Do they need to be double jabbed or just have a negative test? And if they need a negative test, what kind of negative test and when does it come in? And do the rules apply for over 12s or not? And I'm afraid... The answer really depends on the country that you are heading to, although I know that Spain have been clarifying things recently. And we did see that Germany's bid for a full ban on British holidaymakers to all EU countries because of concern about the Delta variant didn't come off. But clearly, this is having a huge impact on people's ability to take up the holidays that they've booked and socking it to the travel sector. Now, of course, the travel sector had really been hoping that this summer would go some way to making them a bit of cash, which they're desperately in need of. You know, they've been having to repay people who had holidays booked. Some people had moved their holiday from last year to this year and are now wondering whether or not they're going to be able to take it at all. And it's really not looking good right now. And investors are rushing to price that in. We've seen big falls across the board. TUI still topping the list of followers on the FTSE 250 as we record this on Tuesday lunchtime. Wizz Air, EasyJet, British Airways owner IAG on the beach, 
all down. Only Jet 2 saw a tiny bit of forward momentum this morning, perhaps because they've taken something of a cautious approach to this summer season today. And let's be honest, you know, the season's on us. It is just four weeks until most schools break up for the summer in England. And we've heard lots of tales of families double booking, having a UK option in place as well as a foreign trip planned. Well, Lots of those people are going to have doubled down on the UK option by now because they don't want to have to deal with disappointed children or even worse, get turned away at the airport or have to spend their full holiday isolating in a hotel room with kids. Now, we know the government's been working on a deal with Europe on a vaccine passport. There's lots of reports that that is close to happening, but it's going to be too late for lots of people to take advantage of foreign travel this summer, particularly because of the uncertainty, as I say, of traveling with children. We also know that a US-UK travel bridge is in the process of being negotiated, but again, that's not looking likely before August. So lots of pain for this sector, particularly as the furlough scheme, which has supported huge numbers of their workforce, begins to wind down. So tough times for holidaymakers and tough times for holiday companies, but we've seen more highs on Wall Street. Is this still the Biden bounce, Danny, after he got his infrastructure deal signed off? It's certainly part of it. I mean, Mm. you know, when you look at the number of zeros attached to this thing, it is massive. (laughs) And it did have a huge impact on markets right across the globe on Friday. We had miners, manufacturers, infrastructure specialists, electric car charge point producers all making substantial gains. And as I say, not just in the US, but also in Asia and here in the UK. In fact, Friday tea time, I was really taken by the fact that we had an online auction company uh, really doing incredibly well. And the reason was they specialise in selling construction equipment. Mm. Now, it isn't just that infrastructure bill which has gone through, although, of course, it made a huge impact and that is going to be felt for months to come. But we've also seen US markets hitting new highs, mostly because those tech giants, you know, they're still partying. Intel, Microsoft, Apple, Tesla, very much in fashion as investors decide they're going to take the Fed at its word. They're not going to worry about rising rates until they have to. And then we've seen today. Facebook joining the $1 trillion club for the first time because it won a victory against US regulators. Now, the tech giant had been accused of stifling competition. The case hasn't been dismissed, meaning that the regulator can refile if it chooses to do so. But the judge said that the case was just too vague. And it also dismissed another lawsuit which could have forced Facebook to split apart from WhatsApp and Instagram over competition concerns. One trillion pound companies, crikey, that really makes my eyes water. And of course, we've still got a sky high oil price. Is there any sign OPEC might up the amount of oil they release to the market? That is the, uh, well, one trillion dollar question, isn't it? (laughs) Um, You know, we we saw the price of a barrel of Brent crude almost touch the $77 mark over the last few days. Lots of talk that we could get $80 a barrel next month. And as you say, later this week, the Organization of Petroleum Exporting Countries, otherwise known as OPEC, and its allies, so OPEC+, Plus are meeting, well, they're due to meet, to discuss the possibility of easing supply and allowing members to pump more oil. Now, if they pump oil, 
then the price should stabilise. But of course, at the moment, this is a huge jigsaw puzzle full of moving parts. As demand picks up, the price does too. Turn up the supply, the price goes down a bit. But then more demand returns. And I'm particularly thinking of travel here because lots of places are opening up quite a bit more. So on the one hand, you think, right, no brainer, of course, OPEC is going to increase supply. Well, no, it's not certain because remember, oil producers are making up for lost time. They're also on the clock because they know that the transition to cleaner, greener energy is speeding up, that mm. they're going to want to make as much money as they can now. And OPEC's also keeping a close eye on talks between the US and Iran because any agreement there that leads to the lifting of US sanctions could lead to more Iranian crude on the market and skew that jigsaw puzzle. And then, of course, there are still questions about whether that rising demand is there to stay. Will it fall back? We've got the Delta variant spreading quite rapidly in some parts of Asia at the moment. And that's why oil prices are still volatile, up one minute, down the next. And OPEC doesn't want to get it wrong. We've also seen US stocks going gangbusters. And as a result, the bond marking has been feeling a little bit unloved. With central banks still pushing rate rises into the long grass, have investors lost interest in them as part of a long-term investment portfolio? Well, Dan Coatsworth has been asking that very question to Invesco's Reese Davis. So bonds have long been considered a core part of a diversified investment portfolio, but there's a lot of negativity around this asset class at the moment. So Shash, I thought it would be useful to get an expert on the show to explain what's going on. So I'm pleased to welcome Reese Davis, who's a portfolio manager on the Invesco Bond Income Plus Investment Trust. So Reese, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Very pleased to be here. Well, should we start off with uh, perhaps the big elephant in the room? Sort of thing? Have bonds lost their appeal to the average investor? So I certainly know that the idea that someone should have 60% of their portfolio in stocks and shares and 40% in bonds seems to be thrown out of the window in favour of having great allocation to shares well into retirement. You know, we're all living for longer and therefore need to keep growing portfolios to fund our golden years. And there is an argument to suggest that's perhaps easier done via shares than bonds. So what do you think of a potential shift in, in what's going on at the moment? Yeah, I, I would start by saying that, um, that shares and bonds differ a lot in terms of what they bring to a portfolio because um, that they are different in their characteristics. Um, you mentioned uh, capital growth, uh, essentially. It, it, if you want capital growth, then yes, shares are more able to give you that. But the trade-off there is safety. So if you want less of that downside risk and to earn a reliable stream of income, uh, then bonds are better suited for that. So um, equities or shares can, in theory, offer unlimited upside. You become a shareholder in a company, you own a piece of the company, and if it does fantastically well, then uh, hopefully so do you. Um, with a bond, it's different in that you are a lender to a company um, or a government. If, a, if, if, if that company does fantastically well, you don't directly share in that success. Your reward stays the same. Uh, it's the interest income or coupon, as we call it, uh, that was agreed at the start of the investment. Um, but as a lender, you are in a much better position if things do go wrong. So you can think of that as your downside is, in theory, less than with a share. 
the quid pro quo is that your upside is, is far more limited. Now, you, you can make capital gains from bonds. Prices do go up uh, and down. Uh, and certainly within our funds, we trade them. Essentially, you can think of it in the, in the same way that you would trade uh, that the shares can be can be bought and sold. Um, but the, the capital growth profile, um, which is what you're talking about, um, it is different between the two. Um, and I think the, the other important point to remember is if you're talking about growing a portfolio, there are no guarantees that a share will rise in value. And equity market valuations today are looking relatively high uh, on many metrics. Whereas with bonds, there are these two important obligations that, that, that we can benefit from as holders, which, which offer us a lot of comfort. One is to pay the interest due, and the second is to repay the bond at maturity. And a company will do everything it can to honour those obligations um, because there are very serious consequences if they don't. So in that regard, what bonds can offer a portfolio is something different in terms of holding on to capital um, whilst also providing uh, a, a source of income. OK, so rising inflation is bad for bonds. It's a, you know, it could lead to higher interest rates and you know, potentially making this asset class less appealing. But you know, what should someone do if they're invested in bonds and perhaps they're worried about inflation at the moment? Yeah, um, you know, inflation is, is something you do have to worry about with bonds. I would say, again, um, you know, think of the type of bond that you own. Um, you know, if, if you're worried about inflation, yes, rising inflation is not good for bonds in general. Um, but not all bonds are the same in terms of how they respond to that risk. High yield bonds, for example, typically carry a higher coupon or interest payment. Um, that helps to offset some of the impact from, from inflation. Whereas government bonds are at the other end of the scale and, and are very exposed to rising inflation. And then the longer the duration, the longer that they will be outstanding for, uh, the more vulnerable they are. Um, you know, I like to think of it in, in simple terms. A bond is a loan to a company or a government. It is an IOU to repay a fixed amount in a set number of years. If inflation, <clears throat> excuse me, if inflation is rising, meaning the the pound in your pocket will buy you less next year and even less the year after, then getting that one pound back in say ten years will be a, will be worth a lot less to you. Uh, and so bondholders start to demand higher yields when inflation is rising. And when yields go up, prices go down. It's like a seesaw. Um, but if you own a bond that's only three years in duration, for example, you'll be getting your, your one pound back a lot sooner. You'd be less worried about it. Um, there'll be less need for its yield to change as much. Uh, and when it matures in that shorter space of time, you can take your theoretical one pound and you can reinvest it into a high yielding bond. So um, you know, high yield bonds tend to have a shorter time to maturity and a higher coupon. Uh, that can help them uh, help make them less exposed to rising rates as a result of inflation. But like everything in life, it's never that simple. There's a trade-off. So the higher yield exists on those bonds because there is more credit risk in the companies that have issued them. So much like an individual's credit score, some people can get a cheap loan because they have an excellent score and others have to pay more. It's the same with, with a bond uh, and credit risk. So our job as fund managers is to understand those credit risks and then using our experience, we can navigate those risks 
and also keep a broad diversified portfolio. So over a hundred lending to over a hundred different companies um, within the portfolio. Uh, and you know, understand those credit risks and 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 benefit from being a high yield investor in, in that way. So I think to sum up what I've just said, if inflation is a concern, um, do think about the different traits of different bonds. Long dated government bonds are very vulnerable to rising inflation, whereas bonds that have some built in yield protection and a shorter in duration, uh, like high yield bonds, for example, are quite different in that regard. Obviously, when, when we look at bonds, there's a lot of focus on yield, but it's it probably worth uh, you explaining some examples to listeners in terms of you know, what sort of yield could someone expect from these different types of bonds today? And, and perhaps how does that compare to perhaps the last five to 10 years? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, first of all, it, it's a lot less today than it was five years ago and a, and a lot, lot less than 10 years ago. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm sure all of your listeners are aware of what's been happening in the world. Yields have been falling. There's been a huge demand for yield. Central banks have played an important role in that. Um, So where does that leave us today? Uh, In European high yield, um, the index is yielding around 3%. Um, That's that's what we call the yield to maturity. Uh, Five years ago, that was 5%. 10 years ago, um, high yield bonds in Europe and the US were paying around uh, 7.6%. Um, so that shows you just how far yields have fallen. Um, in the US today, it's slightly better in, in the high yield market. You, you can earn 4.6% uh, by investing in the US high yield index. Um, but you have to remember the currency uh, risks. So by the time you hedge back that currency exposure, if you are a, a sterling-based investor, um, then you're, you're receiving yields that look fairly similar to what you can get elsewhere in, in Europe. I know that when I first started uh, in the high yield market, it was it was perfectly normal for a a, a, you know, a fine company that didn't really have any uh, you know, serious credit issues um, in the high yield space, though. So with the leverage balance sheet, to be paying you know, seven or eight percent. Um, so this is going back almost 20 years. Today, um, you, you'll typically find that a company that is having to pay 8% coupon uh, or 8% yield um, probably has some elevated credit risks that we need to be wary of. Um, so there I'm talking about the high yield market. Obviously, you know, yields in, in government bonds are a lot less. Uh, for example, you can lend to the, the, the UK uh British government for 10 years and then 0.8% today. Um, uh, and then in the middle, you'd have investment grade. Uh, and, and what we're seeing is that in fact, uh, the, the yields that we're earning on, on high yield today um, are actually similar or even less than what we could have earned from investment grade bonds 10 years ago. Investment grade bonds have uh, less credit risk than, than high yield. So, um, you know, all of these figures that are spoken about, they are at the index level. You know, our job is to open up the index, look inside, find those more attractive looking bonds in terms of yield, um, where we understand the credit risks and we're we're comfortable with them, comfortable with investing within them and lending to those companies, um, but where we can earn more than that, that, that average index yield. So, 
the, the investment trust that I manage, Invesco Bond Income Plus, um, today is targeting a dividend yield of around 5.8%. So that, that's you know, quite a bit higher than what you can earn um, just by investing uh, at an index level in high yield. And we achieve that by, as I said, choosing those bonds very carefully where we understand the credit risks and we, but we can earn a, a high yield. Uh, and most importantly, that we're confident that we will be paid the coupons um, that we're expecting and that we'll be repaid at maturity. Uh, and then what we also do within that trust is to use some borrowing to enhance that yield. Um, but you know, broadly, generally speaking, yields are a lot lower today than they were five years or 10 years ago. Well, Reese, thank you ever so much for talking through the world of bonds. It's great to have you on the show. Thanks, Dan. He will be back with us later in the programme to talk Bitcoin. But before we get on to cryptocurrency, we're going to talk pensions, Tom. We mm. all know about these decisions that we have to make can be really quite complicated. Mm. And we need to be armed with as much independent information as possible to help us make good decisions. So to that end, we've had the government attempting to nudge people towards mm. its guidance service, which is called PensionWise. But before we get into that, I think, Tom, it's probably worth explaining what guidance is and how it differs from regulated advice. Sure. Thanks, Danny. So guidance is the provision of retirement information that's designed to help you better understand the, the rules and the options that you have when you're saving for retirement and when you're taking a retirement income in later life. Now, as you mentioned, there's an official government-backed guidance provider called PensionWise, which offers guidance sessions in person, over the phone and online. And anyone who's aged 50 or over is entitled to a free PensionWise appointment. So it's a handy service that's there that was created as part of reforms that allow people more flexibility over how they take their retirement pots from age 55. Those reforms were introduced around six years ago. Now, any information that you receive from your provider about your options is probably going to be classified as guidance, as indeed as any information that you get from podcasts like this. Now, advice, on the other hand, is a regulated activity whereby for a fee, someone tells you what you should do based on your personal circumstances, based on your priorities, your attitude to risk and your tax position, as well as lots of other things. Now, because the advisor is telling you what you should do, that advice comes with a liability for the advice that's provided. So if you receive bad advice, then you have recourse to complain and potentially re receive compensation if it's found that the advice you, you received was not the right thing to do. So both guidance and advice have got a really important part to play in helping people navigate their way through these quite complicated decisions, but they are they are different things. It's important to understand those differences and how they can play a different role in, in your retirement planning. Okay, so the government's nudging us towards guidance. How mm. is it proposing to get people to take more guidance? Yeah. So the government's concerned that not enough people are taking up these pension-wise appointments. So it's somewhere in the region of one in 10 people they reckon are, are taking this official guidance. Lots of people don't take regulated financial advice either because they simply think they want to do it themselves or they might balk at having to pay a fee to do that. And as a result, you've got this gap of people who potentially aren't getting the help that they need and are making retirement decisions, perhaps not based on all the information that they need to have to hand. So the government's legislated for 
what it calls a stronger nudge to PensionWise. So at the moment, pension providers have to signpost you to PensionWise via various different retirement communications. Um, but as I mentioned, the take-up of those appointments has remained low despite all that signposting that's in place. So the FCA, which is the, the regulator of the city, now needs to implement this nudge, this stronger nudge that the government wants to put in place to PensionWise and it's out how it wants to do it. Now, this will potentially affect people in a couple of ways. So at the moment, the proposal from the FCA, and this is still out for consultation, so is subject to change, but the proposal from the FCA is to require pension providers to offer to book a pension-wise appointment on behalf of their customers, either at the point they want to access their benefits or if they're over age 50 and transfer to a new provider. Now, if the the person accepts the offer, then the provider would need to go away and book the appointment on the saver's behalf, or it's possible that the saver would choose to go about booking that appointment themselves. But either way, if you're going to go down that route, then it's likely what's going to happen is there'll be delays in the receipt of your pension. So if you accept uh, the, 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 the guidance of booking, then you'll have to say that you've taken that guidance before the pension provider will release your money. Equally, if it's applied to transfers, then it's likely to lead to some delays in your money being transferred across. And crucially, and as I said, this is all up for consultation and debate at this stage, the FCA is considering introducing a cooling off period if someone opts out of receiving the guidance. So that would mean that regardless of whether or not you say, yes, you want to take guidance before accessing your money or transferring your pension if you're over 50, there would be a delay and that would have to be prescribed by the FCA before you could get access to your money. So pension-wise, a very good thing. I think people who are um, who are making retirement decisions should think about using pension-wise and speaking to pension-wise, but just be prepared that if these proposals do come into play, then we're likely to see delays in both your ability to access your pension and your ability to transfer your pension as well. Thanks, Tom. Well, look, don't forget, if you've got any questions about pensions, do drop us an email. The address is ajbellmediapodcast at ajbell.co.uk and we'll make sure that they get to our pensions guru, Tom. Um, One subject we get asked loads of questions about is cryptocurrency. And the UK city watchdog, the FCA, has been having a big crackdown telling the crypto exchange Binance that they can't offer regulated services in Britain. Now, Binance said it didn't affect its ability to let British customers buy and sell cryptocurrency, but it has suspended its bank and card payment system, which leaves account holders with few options to withdraw cash. Now, there are lots of regulators right across the world increasing scrutiny at the moment. And one reason for that is the concern that crypto is difficult for law enforcement to trace. So it makes them popular with criminals. Despite the price volatility and regulatory issues, crypto is increasingly popular. We get loads of questions about it. In fact, the FCA data released last week showed that over 2 million Brits now hold crypto. Of course, the majority of people do take a sensible and measured approach, as you should do with all investments. But the data showed that 14%, which I think is a huge amount, Tom, had Mm. borrowed money to fund the investment. But of course, then they're left with the risk of being saddled with a hangover, borrowing money to make an investment, which then might lose money. 
Yeah, that's a, a really worrying trend. But some people, of course, have made a lot of money. And Dan Coatsworth has been talking to Duncan about about how asset manager Ruffer made $1 billion in five months from investing in Bitcoin and where he sees markets going next. Asset manager Ruffer recently made the headlines for going big on Bitcoin and then cashing out for a large profit. I'm pleased to welcome to the podcast Ruffer Investment Director Duncan McInnes to get his view on Bitcoin and the current state of the market. So Duncan, welcome to the show. Hi Dan, thanks for having me. So let's start with Ruffer's big purchase of Bitcoin, which was done as an inflation hedge. Ruffer's sold that Bitcoin now and made $1 billion, yet inflation is still rising. Have you changed your mind about the core reasons why you bought Bitcoin in the first place? Uh, a little bit. Uh, so, so let's just go back a step and say, you know, why did we buy Bitcoin? So we'd followed it for, for interest with a few years, but but last year, the macro environment just could not have been more perfect for a gold-like money, which is digital, independent of governments and central banks and can be debased. And so we changed our mind on Bitcoin when we gained the exposure. And we thought about that famous John Maynard Keynes quote, when the facts change, I change my mind. Um, and I think that applies to our purchase and our sale, because it seemed like a great way to express a view on monetary and fiscal policy profligacy and the creep of negative interest rates and the crypto space itself was sort of growing up. So has any of that changed? Um, not really. Um, the institutional adoption that we talked about is well underway. All the major Wall Street banks are involved and have crypto products and crypto teams. The regulatory environment is evolving. So it's fair to say that Bitcoin has come to the mainstream, which is what we had planned for. However, what has changed dramatically is the price. Uh, at the top, uh, it was up more than 400% from our purchase price uh, of about 15000 in in just five months. So Bitcoin may yet prevail, um, but there's no doubt that there were many signs of froth in the last couple of months. You had retail and celebrity speculation. There was rising leverage in the ecosystem, the Coinbase IPO, Laser Eyes, Dogecoin, adverts on the London Underground, and non-fungible tokens selling for yeah. $60 million. So there was a lot going on. And therefore, in our view, in the short term at least, Bitcoin was exhibiting risk-on characteristics and therefore no longer fulfilled the role that we bought it for, which was as a portfolio protection. Yeah, so your colleague Hamish Bailey says that cryptocurrencies have been beneficiaries of the lockdown economy. I'm just wondering whether that's because people found they had a lot of spare money and they thought cryptos were an easy place to make a quick return. And now that lockdown conditions are easing, do you think that crypto interest might actually be fading? I think there's an element of that. Uh, young people who were stuck at home day trading on their phones on Coinbase and Robinhood now maybe have better things to do as the world reopens. But I think that oversimplifies the point the trends of understanding and adoption are happening, but markets, um, particularly speculative, hard to understand emergent asset classes like cryptocurrencies, are hugely influenced by liquidity. And what we saw in April was that the, the Fed stimulus and fiscal support with things like stimulus checks was peaking. And I don't think there's any coincidence at all that that marked the top for leverage within the crypto ecosystem and also for new account openings at the crypto exchanges. So, so basically what I'm saying is that the asset Bitcoin still has promise, which it may or may not fulfill, but the market for that asset had become dangerously leveraged and quite speculative. And our CIO, Henry Maxey, the other day 
said that excess liquidity has a wonderful way of bringing the hopes of the future into the prices of the present, which I thought nicely summed it up. So when all the good news was, was priced in, uh, we, we waddled rather than hoddled. Yeah. <laughs> so I've seen people say that Bitcoin is a store of value. I'm just wondering how that could be when its price jumps around so much. Yeah, that's a, that's a common pushback. And I think we, we, we've been pretty clear that it is an emergent store of value or the way that Ray Dalio, the manager of the biggest hedge fund in the world, puts it, it's an option on a future store of value. So it's not a store of value yet. And since the, the euros are on at the moment, let's use a football analogy. I would say think of Bitcoin as Jadon Sancho or Jude Bellingham, a high potential, but an unknown quantity and not yet proven like Cristiano Ronaldo, who would be gold in this comparison. So quite simply, if something is going to go from nothing when it was created in 2009 to potentially worth trillions of dollars in the years or decades to come, by definition, that has to be a pretty volatile path. Um, So the Bitcoin price is volatile, but I would also emphasize that the Bitcoin network, uh, Bitcoin itself, is is not volatile. You know with certainty what the supply will be for the next 100 years. You know with certainty that there will only ever be 21 million of them. And the network has never been hacked and has functioned faultlessly 24-7, 365 for over a decade. Yeah, so the Federal Reserve has hinted that interest rates could go up earlier than previously expected. Now, central banks, including the Fed, could also soon be winding down monetary stimulus efforts. I'm just wondering, in your opinion, what investors should be doing under these circumstances? Yeah, well, there's no doubt that the Fed spooked the market last week with, with changes to their forward guidance or communication policy, as they call it. But I, I think it's all a bit of a storm in a teacup. Well, let's be quite clear that effectively... They've said that they're thinking about thinking about raising interest rates by a quarter or half a percent two years from now. So given their track record over the last 10 or 20 years, I'm not sure why we should have any faith whatsoever in their ability <laughs> to forecast uh, two years in advance. Um, you know, despite all of their, their uh, PhDs, remember that these are the same cohort of central bankers who told us in 2008, that subprime was contained, or in 2016, that Brexit would take 20% of UK house prices. Um, so they, they, they don't have perfect foresight at all. And also, it's a lot easier to talk about raising interest rates and reducing stimulus than it is to actually uh, do it. It's like promising to go on a diet or to go on a yoga retreat. So yeah, it's, it's good in theory, but the reality is, is, not, is not so much fun. So I think your listeners, the first thing to do is not overreact. I don't think a great deal has changed, to be honest. I think if you if you zoom out a bit, the big problems pre-COVID were too much debt and too little growth. And those problems are exactly the same. And governments and central bankers, in fact, they're worse. And governments and central bankers are going to do everything that they possibly can to ease the debt burden and to stimulate growth. And that requires keeping interest rates very low, certainly below the rate of inflation, um, and that creates a really big uh, question mark over the role of, of bonds in people's portfolios. Yeah, I can say I didn't think Ruffer was a sort of a, a fan of bonds at, the, at this sort of point in the market cycle. So where, where are you actually putting your money to provide some portfolio balance to equities? Well, that, where, where do you get protection is, is literally the, multi, the multi-trillion dollar question. Mm-hmm. Uh, people have two 
great fears at the moment that, that should rightly be keeping them up at night. The first one is, is inflation making a, a generational comeback? And the second one is, is the balanced portfolio or the 60-40 portfolio dead? And if it is dead, what do you do with uh, the bit of your portfolio that's in bonds? And we've done an extraordinary amount of work on this topic over the last few years, and a lot of it's on our website, on the rougher review. Um, but if this idea that the 60-40 is dead is correct, then the implications are profound and painful for a lot of investors. Bond yields rise, so bond prices fall, and equities derate, so equity prices fall. So what? And worse, the two assets become positively correlated, which is the opposite of the last 40 years. So everything falls. Um, so investors, your listeners, face this menu of asset classes offering low expected returns, negative returns after inflation, and a lack of diversifying and protective characteristics. So they're a bit frazzled and think, well, what on earth, what on earth do you do? Um, the simple answer is that your bond allocation, which is 10, 20, 40%, whatever it is, should become a rougher allocation. Um, you know, we've done the thinking and preparing on this for you. Um, but the more nuanced answer is, is that what you had in bonds, um, which just will no longer cut it in a low return inflationary world, needs to transition into real assets. And there's lots of lots of them out there uh, to consider, each with their own advantage and their, their own pitfalls, but inflation-linked bonds, gold, Bitcoin, property, infrastructure, carbon credits, intellectual property rights, commodities, and the list goes on. That the, the challenge is to own the right ones in the right amounts at the right time. You know, that's going to be the trick if you can do it. Yeah. You know, equities have certainly rallied since the you know the market crash seemed to hit the bottom of in March last year. But it does feel as if we're a bit of a turning point again. There's so much good news now being priced in with sort of the recovery. And you know, there there are some potential headwinds for monetary policy changes, you know, when they might happen. As you said, no one knows. But do you actually think we might see a market correction, you know, potentially this year, or do you think the markets just might just sort of lose momentum, sort of drift for a while? Well, the, the truth is, no, nobody knows, <laughs> as, yeah. as you know. <laughs> uh, but one of one of the great ironies about investing is that the best time to invest is when it is absolutely terrifying and everything is utterly bleak, like March last year. And the worst time to invest is when everything is going well and it seems obvious that you should invest. And that's not a new insight. You know, Nathan Rothschild said in the 19th century, buy on the cannons and sell on the trumpets. <laughs> and there's an old Robert Louis Stevenson quote that it's better to travel than arrive. And I think there's quite a bit of that going on in markets at the moment. And I'm thinking about those two quotes quite a lot. And we've been, we've been dialing down the risk in our portfolio, so reducing equities and increasing cash um, and other protections after a period of, of quite strong returns. We were flat when the market was down 30% at the lows last year. So we preserved capital in the crisis, and then we've made 30% since then. It just doesn't feel like an environment to be taking lots of risk. And ju just as the Coinbase IPO marked the top in Bitcoin, perhaps Freedom Day when we reopen the economy, could mark the top in markets. And that would be that would be quite paradoxical. But you know, the truth is that nobody knows. But I just think caution is warranted. You've got a you've got a battle of competing forces going on at the moment. Lots of pockets of exuberance and things that look a bit bubbly, economic momentum as we reopen, huge support for markets from governments and central banks. 
and the fact that cash pays you nothing. So there's no alternative for your listeners. You know, they've got to chuck it into the stock market or something to try and earn a return. That's all positive, sort of, versus um, an economy that is drowning in debt post-COVID, you know, sort of unevenly staggering out of a recession um, with this looming threat of inflation because of this cocktail of supply chain bottlenecks, reduced capacity, uh, plus all the money printing. And that cocktail, you know, if, if served up, will be pretty negative for all for all asset markets. So that's that's the battle that you've got to contend with at the moment. Well, brilliant, Duncan. Thank you ever so much for sharing your thoughts uh, across the, the state of the markets and, and Bitcoin as well. So thank you ever so much. That's Duncan McInnes from Ruffa. Thank you. Thanks, Dan. That is a subject that always gets people talking. And here's another that's proved something of a bit controversial. Uh, life insurance. Now, you probably weren't expecting me to say that because it's not automatically what you think of when <laughs> thinking about controversy, is it? But a tweet from a financial journalist about life insurance sparked uproar among financial advisors over the weekend. So what did he say? Yes, that's right. Yeah, not 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 the usual topic for for huge um, a huge Twitter storm and huge controversy. But um, Ali say Ali Hussein at the Sunday Times was tweeting about life insurance after the topic was covered in the weekend's paper, and the specific tweet which caused all this controversy read: "A life insurance policy is like a pact with death. You might as well invest those premiums. That way, you're better off the longer you live, not the other way around." Now he went on to say. Financial advisors love to sell these insurance policies. It's one thing that can still earn them commissions. So beware those who peddle them. So you can understand why financial advisors in particular might have been slightly put out by the second part of that tweet. But I think it was really that first part of the tweet which caused a lot of the controversy. So created lots and lots of debates among financial advisors and life insurance experts on social media. I think people were united actually in, in disagreeing with the sentiment, which is quite a, a rare thing to see on social media, any kind of <laughs> yeah, thing that unites people. But there you go. Um, so some people were comparing this to car insurance. One advisor saying car insurance is like a pact with car crashes, which I thought was quite an interesting way of putting it. Anthony Morrow, the chief executive of Open Money, said life insurance is the best value financial investment anyone can make. Another person said if you have dependents who will be financially vulnerable after death, you have a responsibility to arrange life assurance. I think the the fundamental issue here is the difference between making yourself better off by investing over the long term and insuring yourself and your family against a catastrophic event. So it's the difference between investing for the future and investing for peace of mind. I think it one, the good thing about this was that it generated debate and there were lots of people responding, I think, quite quite positively to to the to, to it rather than getting into a slanging match, actually talking about the, the positive things that life insurance can do rather than just focusing necessarily on any perceived negative negativity from, from the tweet from the journalist. So consensus pretty much that life insurance can be valuable, mm. but lots of different sorts of cover. So what should people be thinking about before they buy a product? Yeah, lots of things to think about. So slightly confusingly, there are two very similar sounding terms used in, in this space. So life assurance and life 
insurance and in fact it's generally an area that can I find be a little bit jargon-tastic and that's coming from someone who spends most of their life talking about pensions so there you <laughs> that go. That is a turn up for the books yeah. <laughs> but in in simple terms when people talk about life assurance with an A they usually mean a, a whole of life policy that pays out a pot of money that's that'll usually be labeled a sum assured when you die and that's uh, that's regardless of what happens. So there's no specific term of the policy. The payout will be tax-free. And this is often used for inheritance tax planning in conjunction with an advisor. Now, life insurance with an I, on the other hand, is usually over a set period of time. So it'll only pay out if you die within that policy term. Um, it's kind of kind of obvious, but you'd the difference between life insurance and life assurance and investing is that you, you'd rather actually that your that your policy doesn't pay out. You don't want your policy to give you any money. It's just sat there to give you peace of mind and to give your family peace of mind in the event that something very, very bad happens. Now, in terms of the types of policy, you can get lots of different types. So I mentioned a whole of life policy where it guarantees a payout when you die. You also have different policies uh, based over certain terms that will be for specific purposes. So for example, you have critical illness policies for if you become ill that will pay out a certain amount of money. You have income protection policies that are often used to cover the term of a mortgage. So if you lose your job and you lose your regular income, then they'll pay out a regular income to give you that peace of mind. But I think that's the key term in this. I think if you're going to buy a life insurance policy, then it's the peace of mind that you're investing in. So you'll need to think about the premiums you can afford and the kind of cover you need, just in the same way as you do with any other type of insurance product as well. You need to think about how that links with all your other financial priorities. And I think crucially in all of this, you should check with your employer before you take out any kind of policy what kind of death in service benefits that you will get as part of your contract. So sometimes employers, quite often actually, employers will offer death in service benefits as part of your deal for your overall remuneration deal for working at a company. And that will usually mean that you'll get a multiple of your salary paid out to your dependents on in the event that you do die while you're working at that company. So it's a bit of a morbid subject, lots of mentions of death, but the idea, of course, of life insurance is just to protect yourself and your in particular protect your family in the event that something awful happens so at least they won't have to think about the financial implications of of what they need to do going into the future. Now I would imagine there have been a number of conversations about insurance that have been taken uh, when we start talking about our next subject. Jenny you have been researching holidays Yeah, with a twist, um, I'd say, compared to what we were talking about earlier. So today in Money Madness, I'm delving into an extreme type of tourism and travel, which promises an out-of-this-world experience. Of course, it's space travel. And we're starting with possibly the priciest trip ever. Jeff Bezos is heading into space on the 20th of July, and a mystery bidder paid a whopping $28 million to join him. The 11-minute experience will be Blue Origin's 16th flight, but the first to carry passengers. That's over $2.5 million a minute. But the Amazon CEO's venture isn't the only commercial spaceflight operation out there. Richard Branson is rumoured to be keen to pip Bezos to the post and send himself into space a couple of weeks earlier using a winged craft at near hypersonic velocities. Virgin Galactic has already sold tickets to around 600 passengers 
charging between $200,000 to $250,000 each. But if you happen to have a cool quarter mill in your piggy bank, hold your horses as the company expects the price to rise when the first commercial flights are available next year. I looked at other billionaires and their extreme hobbies. The late Microsoft co-founder Paul Allen and his passion for underwater exploration. Facebook's Mark Zuckerberg and his electric surfing. And Oracle founder Larry Ellison's catamaran obsession. With any extreme hobby, though, there'll be some form of backlash, especially when it's backed by one of the richest people in the world. And at the time of recording this podcast, over 134,000 people have signed a petition requesting that Bezos shouldn't be allowed back on Earth after his flight. (laughs) Obviously, that, that can't be put into any action, but it has since sparked a debate about wealth inequality. So whoever secured the ticket on Blue Origin's rocket might want to check whether they'll be allowed back onto planet Earth before they take part. <laughs> yeah, can you imagine the conversations that have been had about insurance for this one, though? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Extensive. The paperwork. Oh. The paperwork. Yes. Yeah, I can't even begin to think about the paperwork. Um, that is it from this week's podcast. Next week, we'll be having a deep dive into the UK property market. It's still on fire, according to the latest house price figures from Nationwide. The stamp duty holiday is coming to a close, but it's thought that our changing preferences are going to keep things bubbling away for the rest of the year. I'll be chatting to a relocation expert about what people are looking for and how homeworking has changed the playing field. Dan's chatting to Tritax about the boom in warehouse demand. And Ryan Hughes, AJ Bell's head of active portfolios, is back with us to talk through what is going on with property funds. For now, though, thanks very much, Tom and Jenny. Cheers. Thanks. Thanks for listening. Before you go, please remember this podcast is for educational purposes and the views expressed don't necessarily reflect those of AJ Bell or Shares Magazine. The podcast isn't telling you whether certain investments are suitable or not. And don't forget that the value of investments can change and you can lose money as well as make it. It's also important to remember that tax rules apply and that the way an investment performed in the past may not be the same as how it behaves in the future. If you want help, go see a qualified financial advisor. Thank you.